Hey guys, welcome to uh, the first ever episode of Med Review. This is Nicole. I'm here with Dane. Hi guys. We're going to start with episode one of our cardio series with ischemic heart disease, which we think is obviously a very important topic and um, really appropriate thing to start with because we know that heart disease is number one cause of death and mortality in um, in the Western world. And within that, ischemic heart disease is the biggest uh, cause. So because of this is a really large topic, we're going to split it into two episodes. We're going to start with kind of basics of ischemic heart disease and chronic stable angina. And then we're going to do a part two covering unstable angina and um, MI, so acute coronary syndrome. We're going to start going through the kind of definition of ischemic heart disease and the risk factors. And then we're going to talk about the signs and symptoms you'll see in a patient, um, what investigations and what management is appropriate. So Nicole, what is angina? So in terms of what angina is or what ischemic heart disease is, when you think about ischemic heart disease, we're really talking about the disease that occurs when you have an imbalance of the oxygen supply to the heart muscle and the oxygen demand. So there's not enough supply to meet the demand of the heart. And then the main cause of that will be coronary artery disease, where there's uh, plaque or atherosclerosis within the arteries of the heart we're not supplying enough oxygen. And then angina is really a manifestation or a syndrome of symptoms that will come from that. So just to differentiate those things. Um, and I guess we'll talk about kind of angina versus regular chest pain. The difference there really is that angina is specifically talking about chest pain that is caused by myocardial ischemia. Do you know where the word um, angina actually comes from? I thought this was pretty interesting. So it literally means strangling. So the strangling, pain, and then pectoris means chest. Um, and Nicole, is there anything that can exacerbate um, angina or make it worse in terms of the sort of pathophysiology? Yeah, so so as I said, like the, the main cause of angina will be an issue with the supply of oxygen. So that will be namely coronary artery disease. But it can also be caused by sort of pathological increases in the demand for oxygen like a tachyarrhythmia where the heart has to beat really fast or a left ventricular hypertrophy where there's a lot of muscle mass that needs demand and things like thyrotoxicosis or anemia where the heart will also have to beat really fast can also exacerbate those symptoms. Hmm. And I guess it's important to remember here is that we're talking about chronic stable angina, but this really sits on the spectrum um, of coronary artery disease. And on one side, there's chronic stable angina where you've got this sort of stable plaque. And then on the other end of the spectrum is the acute coronary syndromes, um, such as unstable angina and STEMI and STEMI, which we'll be talking about next week. So Nicole, who is at risk of coronary artery disease? Great question, Dane. So it's a very multifactorial disease. And I think it's useful to think about it in terms of your non-modifiable and your modifiable risk factors like with many other lifestyle diseases. So in terms of the non-modifiable risk factors, age is really strong. As you get older, you're more at risk. Um, male patients are more at risk. Women actually premenopausally have a lower risk, but postmenopause, they increase their risk closer to men. And then people who have a strong family history, and that's particularly talking about young relatives. So, you know, if you've got a patient who's had family members who've had heart attacks sort of under the age of 60, that might be significant. And then the real money as a physician, I guess, is in your modifiable risk factors. So these are the things that we're actually going to try to treat to prevent this disease. So these are really lifestyle things like smoking, high blood pressure, 
high cholesterol, diabetes, obesity, lack of exercise, and poor diet. Right. And these are the things that we can um, essentially do something about. So these will become really important later when we're talking about um, disease prevention, secondary prevention. Um, and the big ones there are lipids, high blood pressure, diabetes, and smoking, I think. Exactly. So, Dane, how about we talk about sort of what are the things we might expect to see in a patient who has ischemic heart disease or stable angina? What might they present with? Yeah, so typical angina or this typical chest pain, it really has three components. So the first component is um, the sort of location and the characteristics of the pain. So it's really described as a substernal chest pain or discomfort, and it's typically described as tightness or heaviness or you know like an elephant sitting on your chest that sort of thing that's the first component the second component is that it's provoked by exertion and that's a big one and then the third component is that it's relieved by rest or by the use of gtn and so if you have three out of three of these of these features we call that typical chest pain if you have two out of three of these features um, it's atypical chest pain and if you've only got one of these features um, it's referred to as non-anginal chest pain i think this is also really important in terms of kind of classifying this a lot of stable angina diagnosis will be based on history um, and so you really want a kind of classic story of exertional chest pain that's quite consistent um, and so like if you're talking to a patient who has chest pain they might think it's exertional um, and be you know unsure um, but patients with stable angina can often tell you like exactly how much exercise they can get before they start getting chest pain or before they need to use their GTN spray so um, that can be really helpful in terms of like narrowing down whether this is like an anginal cause of chest pain. For sure yeah. Um, yeah. And there's also a couple of groups that um, sometimes don't present with this, this typical sort of chest pain. Um, so, Nicole, any idea of what sort of these special groups might be? Yeah, so there's, there's definitely populations where they might have sort of atypical symptoms and, and the classic ones are women um, or people with diabetes. And um, so you need to really, if you have a patient who's a diabetic or, or female and they've got something like shortness of breath on exertion, just keep in the back of your mind that it could also be an ischemic cause, even if they don't have that kind of classic chest pain. So Nicole, what are we looking for on examination when we see these patients? So there's nothing really um, specific on exam that we're gonna find for an angina, um, but there are certain things that we should be looking for. So we're looking for the risk factors that might cause angina or signs of them on exam like taking their blood pressure, see if they've got hypertension. We're looking for signs of diabetes or hyperlipidemia. Um, we're looking for signs of other causes of arterial or other types of arterial disease. So if they've got coronary artery disease, they might also have atherosclerosis in their carotid arteries or their peripheral arteries. And then we're also looking for those things we talked about before that can exacerbate um, ischemic heart disease symptoms, so anemia, thyrotoxicosis, signs of those on exam. Yeah. Um, and there's also this thing called uh, Levine sign. Have you heard of this? <laughs> I have heard of that. So this is, I think, the kind of classic sign where they put their closed fist over their sternum. Is that right? Sort of clutching the type of, to describe the type of pain they're experiencing. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it was named after a guy called Samuel A. Levine. 
Um, and he was an influential American cardiologist. Um, and he first observed that um, patients suffering from ischemic chest pain would often um, clench their fists and hold it over their left chest to describe what it felt like. And it became this sort of, um, sort of more specific sign for ischemic type chest pain than other signs. Okay, so Ooh. we're going to have a whole episode on differentials of chest pain. Um, but just to mention now, there's sort of three broad sort of categories um, or systems that can be used um, when thinking about chest pain. And obviously today we're talking about cardiac causes. So that's things like stable angina, acute coronary syndromes and pericarditis, things like that. Then there's respiratory causes of chest pain like pneumonia and pulmonary embolism. And then there's gastrointestinal um, such as reflux or esophageal spasm and things like that. But just keep a sort of um, a wide differential list when you're approaching these patients. So Nicole, what sort of investigations are we gonna do for these patients when they first present uh, maybe to their GP and they're having this sort of reproducible chest pain? Yeah, so I think, I mean, any person, first of all, if they're in an episode of chest pain, will sort of go down a ACS pass, pathway to exclude it. So they'll get things like an ECG at the time. Um, but if a patient presents to their GP and they're feeling fine in the, at the moment, but they mentioned that they're getting these episodes of chest pain when they're, you know, exercising, um, there's a few things we'd want to do. So for everyone, we definitely want to do some basic blood tests, and that would include a full blood count. We're looking for what the hemoglobin is. So as we talked about, we want to exclude anemia. We're looking at the HbA1c because we want to know about um, their diabetes risk and their fasting blood glucose for the same reason. And then we also want to look at their lipids or their cholesterol levels. We'd be getting an ECG at rest and then um, considering a stress ECG, which I think you're going to talk about in a moment. There's certain kind of things you want to consider before doing that. Um, and then the other tests you may or may not do, depending on, I guess, um, the results of the other tests or how their treatment is going, are, are things like a chest X-ray or an echo if you're worried about things like heart failure as the cause of their chest pain or if they have shortness of breath as well. Yeah. So I think, awesome. Dane, you might want to talk a little bit about kind of what stress testing is and when and why we might do that and what we're looking for. Yeah. So, um, look, I think stress testing and workup of coronary artery disease can be really daunting and seem really complicated because there's so many different modalities. Um, but just to keep it really simple, it's basically all about your pre-test probability of them having coronary artery disease. And you can actually sort of, they have these tables put out by the American um, Heart Association, which you can look up and it tells you, given their age and their, if they have typical atypical symptoms, what their pre-test probability is. But I guess um, if you're a clinician, you can kind of just use your um, gestalt to um, come up with if this is a sort of um, low probability and intermediate probability or high probability of coronary artery disease. And so patients with low probability coronary artery disease, really you don't need to do additional testing and really you should be looking for an alternative diagnosis. Um, stress testing is the most useful when there's an intermediate risk of coronary artery disease. And really the best test is the exercise treadmill stress test. So that's literally... You get on a treadmill, they have particular protocols. The famous one is the Bruce protocol, um, where it's like uh, increasing um, sort of gradient and speed. And they monitor things like blood pressure and heart rate. And really, you're looking at the ECG. Um, and you'll have a positive stress test if on that ECG you have 
this sort of downsloping ST depression. But the problem is, is that not everyone um, has a normal ECG to start with, which makes it um, a little bit harder to interpret those findings. So if you have an abnormal ECG baseline, the alternatives there is that you can do an exercise nuclear stress test or a stress echo. Um, we won't really talk much about those. And also a lot of people can't actually exercise. So if you can't exercise, you can do things like a pharmacological stress test. But I think it's important to know that really exercise treadmill stress tests are the most useful when it's an intermediate risk and most useful when you have a normal ECG um, and you can exercise. And then patients with a high risk should just go straight to coronary um, angiography. So how are we going to treat these patients? So I think with, like with our knee disease, we're starting with, you know, what are the, the least interventional things that we can do or the things with the lowest risk? And so we want to start by looking at their risk factors that we talked about before and how we can modify them. So we'll just start with basic sort of healthy lifestyle things. So encouraging patients to get regular physical activity, um, lose weight if possible, um, stop smoking for sure if they're a smoker, that's a really important one. And then we want to reduce their blood pressure either through the lifestyle modifications or in combination with medication. We're commonly using things like ACE inhibitors or calcium channel blockers like amlodipine. And the target there generally is less than 130 on 80. Um, and then we also want to control their diabetes if they are a diabetic patient. We also have some um, medication that's really common for anyone with uh, heart disease. So we would always want to give them like an aspirin. Um, and usually that will be about 100 milligrams a day. And then a statin. So in patients who have coronary artery disease or ischemic heart disease, we want their um, cholesterol really to be below even normal levels and especially to lower their sort of like what might be described as bad cholesterol, so their LDL. And these are the things that actually prevent death. Exactly. So the, these ones really have like a mortality benefit, not just controlling their symptoms. So I guess we, we then talk about acute um, treatment of the symptoms. So you've got the sort of uh, risk factor modification that Nicole just talked about. Um, and now I'm going to talk about the acute management. And really the acute management for people with chronic stable angina is GTN. Um, or uh, glycerol trinitrate um, and this should be given to all patients and this is really this like acute treatment and basically all it does is cause coronary vasodilation so it's just allowing um, more oxygen supply to the muscle there's two different forms so you can get a spray a sublingual spray and also a tablet they can um, pop one of these as soon as they start having symptoms and they can repeat this after five minutes if they've used three in a row and the pain is still there, they really should be taken to the ED to rule out um, things further along on that spectrum, like unstable angina and endothelial or stemi. Um, and just common side effects with these medications to note is that um, they can get headaches, flushing and hypertension, and that's all due to that um, vasodilation. Um, Nicole, what about preventing it in the long run? What, what sort of medications can we use? Yeah, so... Um... In the, over the long term, the sort of first line medication would be a beta blocker. So the common ones are metoprolol or atenolol. Um, and the aim there is really to decrease their heart rate and their blood pressure, which decreases the oxygen demand in their heart. And we're looking for a target heart rate of like 55 to 60 beats per minute. If they have signs of um, left ventricular dysfunction or heart failure, then we want to use... Um, different beta blockers that are sort of targeted at um, 
heart failure patients. So those are like carvedilol or nabivolol. Um, and we want to be cautious with any of these patients if they have heart, failure, uh, heart block or they're in decompensated heart failure or have lung disease, we might not be able to give a beta blocker. We also really don't want to combine these with um, non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. So that's verapamil or diltiazem um, due to, why do, we, why do we not want to do that, Dane, I guess I should ask. Yeah, so they both can um, cause negative inotropy and together they can cause a really profound um, bradycardia and complete heart block. Um, so it's really not a good idea to combine them. However, if patients can't take a beta blocker for some reason, um, the non-dihydropyridines like rapinol or diltiazem are actually a pretty good alternative first-line agent. Um, but that's really the only place they have um, in treatment of chronic stable angina, just to replace beta blockers if they're not acceptable. So, Nicole, if, if patients are on a beta blocker and they're still getting symptoms, what's the next step? Yeah, so we can combine that with a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker, um, such as amlodipine or nifedipine. Um, and that acts mainly peripherally. So that means it will decrease the afterload that the heart has to work against and therefore decrease oxygen demand within the heart. What are the other chronic um, options for us, Dane? Yeah, so if you've got a patient, they're on a beta blocker, they still had symptoms, then they were put on a um, dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker like nifedipine, they still have symptoms, then you can add on a long-acting nitrate. So the options here are isosorbid mononitrate or a GTN patch. Um, so these really, again, are causing the coronary vasodilation. So they're improving oxygen delivery. Um, and also they decrease the preload. So it's decreasing the amount um, that the ventricular wall needs to work against. The important thing to note here is that you really need a, a nitrate-free period of about 12 hours. So most patients will take off their patch overnight. Um, and this is really to avoid nitrate tolerance or tachyphylaxis. Um, and again, um, the common side effects with uh, nitrates are headaches, flushing and, and hypertension. If patients are on these three different medications and they're still having symptoms, then that's when you sort of look down um, revascularization. Um, and so what are our options for this, Nicole? Yeah, so um, this is something we'll, we'll talk about again next week when we do acute coronary syndrome. But in general, with revascularization, we're either talking about um, a stent procedure or a, um, I guess it's a less invasive procedure where um, we're trying to place a stent within the coronary artery and open it up. Um, or we're talking about a cabbage or a coronary artery bypass graft where we're actually having sort of open heart surgery and grafting a new blood vessel onto the heart to bypass the blocked part of the artery. So it's either going in and opening up that existing artery or putting on a new vessel that can bypass the existing artery. And what sort of patients do better with a cabbage? In general, with a cabbage, we're looking at patients who have more extensive disease. So um, multi-vessel disease, more of their coronary arteries are affected. So typically if a patient has triple vessel disease, which means their right coronary artery, their left anterior descending and their left circumflex artery are all affected, um, it's common that they'll be considered for a cabbage. 
Um, diabetic patients and heart failure patients also more strongly considered for cabbage. Um, but the obvious benefits are with um, a stent procedure or PCI procedure is that it's a less invasive, less risky seizure at the time. And what do they need to be on after they undergo um, stenting? Yeah, so if you have a stent, you're placing essentially a um, artificial piece of metal inside of an artery. That's a really, um, a really risky item for causing thrombosis in the future. And so we want to um, give them medication to reduce that risk. And so generally that will involve aspirin indefinitely. And then they'll be on a second antiplatelet agent such as clopidogrel or ticagrelor, usually for six to 12 months. And that's basically, the second agent is basically used until the stent sort of endothelializes or we get cells forming around it, which reduces the risk of a thrombosis forming. And then uh, we'll take them off that second antiplatelet agent and I'll continue with aspirin sort of indefinitely for the rest of their life. Awesome. So I think we'll leave it there. Um, so today we spoke about chronic stable angina. Um, next week, we're going to talk about um, more of the acute conditions. So we're going to talk about acute coronary syndromes, including um, unstable angina and STEMI and STEMIs. Um, I hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll be back next time. Thanks, guys.